0: What's up, Stitches? I'm Isabella Rosner, and I'm here to welcome you to episode 15 of season two of So What? A delight! A treat! Today's episode is an interview with the wonderful PhD student Kat Gay, all about Australian schoolgirl needlework, which is so exciting because that's a whole region I've not discussed on this podcast thus far. New regions! New interviewees! A thrill! A pure thrill! Kat Gay is a first-year PhD student at the University of Melbourne, which I have to force myself to say Melbourne and not Melbourne, Melbourne, where she is a Hanson scholar. She researches the life stories and experiences of girls in 19th century Victoria, the southeastern Australian state that is home to Melbourne. Kat is focusing on the material culture girls in Victoria used, modified, or created themselves. I was put in touch with Kat by Dr. Sarah Bendel, who is an Australian material culture historian who focuses on historic dress. So thank you, Dr. Bendel. I'm really excited to learn more about Australian needlework because it's something I know very, very little about, and I'm intrigued to see similarities between Australian samplers and those made in other British colonies, and even areas like 19th century American frontier lands like California. We talk a bit about those similarities in the interview itself. We also spend some time talking about colonialism and its impact on the indigenous Australian population, now, before we get into the interview, it's time for the social media spiel, always and forever. Images of the Australian needlework Kat and I discuss on the episode can be viewed on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SoWhatPodcast, and on the website SoWhatPodcast.com. Yay social media, yay images, you love to see it! And now, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Here it is. Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for being here today. I am so, so excited to hear you talk about your work and to learn more about Australian needlework.
1: Thanks, Isabella. Very excited to be here today as well. Very happy to have a chat. Excited to let you know all about what I'm doing and Australian needlework in general.
0: First question, can you tell the So What listeners
1: a bit more about your PhD research? Yeah, sure. Um, Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that today I'm speaking from Nam, which is Melbourne, um, on the Australian continent, on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung land, um, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and resistance is ongoing. My PhD looks to girls in 19th century Victoria, which is where I live, which was an Australian colony and is now a state. Um, it's home to over 35 First Nations Australians cultural language groups and has a fraught history and present of invasion and settler colonial government governance and development. So I'm based at the University of Melbourne which I think is the oldest university, one of the oldest universities in Australia um, and it's in Melbourne which is the capital of Victoria. Um, the Australian continent was invaded in 1788 by the British who came to set up a penal colony. And around this time, they'd invaded lots of other countries and other parts of the world and done similar things. Um, And the aim here was to create a settler colony rather than like an extractive colony. So they wanted to bring British people here, set up the land, dispossess the Indigenous peoples and create a nation state. They landed around present day Sydney and established the colony of New South Wales. And Victoria was originally part of this and it was called the Port Phillip District. So I think some farmers from Van Diemen's Land, which is now Tasmania, the little island um, down at the bottom of Australia, sailed across in 1834 and they illegally set up some farms Um, and they were followed by more people illegally setting up more farms from around 1835 to 1836 and continued on um, around present-day Melbourne. Um, So the British government eventually gave in and they declared Port Phillip a separate colony in 1851 And just to be original, they named it after their queen, Victoria. Mm. Um, So this is kind of where my girls come in. I look to the lives and experiences of Indigenous and settler girls from the original settler invasion of Victoria in 1835 uh, until the colonies were joined together in 1901 to form the Australian nation or Commonwealth. So I'm producing a girl-centred history, um, and I like to privilege girls' voices and experiences rather than produce a history of girls and girlhood from adults' perspectives. So my thesis looks to girls from a range um, of intersectional backgrounds without a category of age. I ask how age, along with gender, race, class, ethnicity, health and disability, religion, and so on, affects experience in the context of 19th century Victoria. I'm focusing on girls aged 5 to 15, which is roughly post-infancy and pre-puberty or menstruation, and covers the crucial years in which a girl was educated. I also privilege girl-produced or influenced sources, their material culture being things they made, modified or used to get access to girls' voices. So all of this is to the backdrop of 19th century Victorian and Australian life, so the pastoral invasion I described in the 1830s and 1840s, and there were some gold rushes in the 1850s, an introduction of an Aboriginal mission and reserve system in the 1860s, compulsory schooling in the 1870s, um, and an economic boom and depression in the 1880s and 90s. So I'm arguing that looking at history from girls' perspectives and using their material culture can unsettle and perhaps even challenge some of the dominant paradigms that we use in Australian history.
0: That was amazing. You genuinely taught me so much. I know uh, literally nothing about Australian history, like just nothing at all. How did you come to research girls in 19th century Victoria and their material culture generally, specifically needlework, for the sake of this podcast?
1: I think that there are numerous reasons, uh, which I think are all like super interrelated. And I can't really remember which came first anymore. But I think one of the central ones is that I'm a settler girl, or I suppose I'm a young woman now, but I refuse to admit it. All my great-great-whatever grandparents were among the first to come over here and take a slice of the pie. I think one of my great-great um, something or other grandfathers um, came to Victoria in like the 1830s, like a couple of years after people first came here. So it's really interesting, that personal connection to that. So I think like the legacy of invasion and dispossession is something that I've had to grapple with and many settler Australians still think about and grapple with um, As like as we've seen, I feel like, throughout the decades and especially in the last year that like settler colonialism is not over and it's a present structure that underpins everything in Australia and other settler colonies. It underpins our political and our economic systems, our cultures, even our education system and our social life. And I think that like history helps me grapple with this and understand it. Um, And I think exploring Victoria's history and Australia's history through children's perspectives might help uncover and even perhaps avert some of the logics of settler colonial rule. And also I think another big one is that girls and children more broadly have been really overlooked in Australian historiography. I did my honours thesis, which is like a little extra year at the end of your undergraduate degree here in Australia, which is equivalent to like a master's, and I looked at uh, girls' material culture in Victoria in the late 19th century and early 20th century And I realised really early on that no one had written substantially anyway on Australian children and girls specifically. There's a couple, there's one book in the 1990s, but that was like the last major work. Um, So whilst my PhD is not a gap-filling exercise, the lack of literature is definitely a big driver. Um, And material culture has come into my research for a few reasons. So firstly, I've always loved art and museums, um, and I completed an internship at Museums Victoria I think in 2017 um, and I did art history and history in my undergraduate and I really loved bringing objects and history together and I felt like the two disciplines had a lot to say to each other which they weren't really saying to each other in Australian history because I feel like Australian historians are a bit skeptical or dismissive of material and visual culture as a historical source um, so I wanted to prove that they could be brought together and there was some value there but material culture, especially needlework, is a great insight into girls' lives. All girls used and created things. Like in Victoria, for instance, factory girls were making garments in the 1870s, some girls were using mangles for washing and school girls were stitching needlework samplers. So the things girls made, like these needlework samplers or the doll's clothes or scrapbooks or perhaps collected, like toys, are often the only things that a girl has left behind and are a non-verbal voice. I think that these objects can speak to us through time and tell us something about a girl's life and her experiences. And even an absence of material culture I'm realising can speak volumes, showing that perhaps a girl did not have the time or resources to create or that such items have not been valued over time and have been lost in the following decades.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So in your research, what have you found out about Australian samplers? Are there unique motifs or compositions or color combinations or I don't even know what? Is there anything that makes Australian needlework unique?
1: Um, There are some things. I feel like there's a lot to say about Australian samplers and I feel like they're definitely like a meshing of like a lot of different influences and I think the thing to say isn't there isn't really like an archetypal Australian sampler like I think girls kind of pick and chose what they put into samplers and kind of like they change a lot over the decades but they also stay kind of similar it's a weird time but um yeah there's not not really um, they're all similar but they're all very different so so most samplers use a linen ground and they either use silk cotton or wool thread So I think my knowledge about Australian samplers, it largely comes from the work of a handful of amazing scholars who've done some great work before me. So Lorinda Kramer, she originally um, published a wonderful book on genteel women's needlework in 19th century Australia really recently, which is a great read if you need something something to read about (laughs) Australian needlework she's fabulous and then Margaret Fraser wrote a thesis on specifically on samplers in I think the early 2000s which is great and there's like an 80s book um, by Marion Fletcher which is a fab resource but a little bit dated now so yeah. I think there's definitely a lot to be work in the realm of Australian needlework and stuff like that so like you, we can kind of like put Australian samplers into kind of like some broad categories which I'll run through Ooh, so yes yeah I, I think I'm seeing some patterns. So. In the early 19th century, it was hard to get sewing materials to Australia because it was super-duper far away and took, like, three to six months to get to get here probably like sometimes longer and ships got shipwrecked and all those horrible things um so a lot of women brought fabric with them from britain to make clothing and household linens and like decorative like needlework on their arrival uh, and because of this lack of materials early samplers are quite subdued in color and maybe only use one to four colors most of the time Uh, One of the earliest surviving samplers was made in 1831 by a girl called Sarah Docker, who lived near the Murray River, which is the border between Victoria and New South Wales. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very, very worn and it's stitched from wool thread on linen. Um, But from the 1860s, we see lots more and the 1850s really, like lots more materials coming in. And yeah, faster ships and increasing populations Um, throughout throughout the 19th century, particularly from the gold rush in the 1850s meant more trade could occur to Australia and there was a bit of like local manufacturing as well. So we kind of see samplers from the early to mid-19th century usually included the usual hallmarks that we see in like English and American samplers, like the moralising verse, the name and the date and the age of the maker and sometimes a location um, and usually some motifs, usually a picture of a house Mm. or a garden and some flowers and the borders. Um, there's a really great sampler by a girl called Rose Pelé, um, whose mother was the housekeeper to the first governor of Victoria, Charles Latrobe, um, and it was made in 1847. And at the top there's this dainty little alphabet um, embroidered in like beige, green, blue and red, and then she uses those colours throughout the sampler and she's got like a bee and a house and then a border of flowers and then she's got the little um, moralising verse that says, like, Jesus permit thy gracious name to stand and that kind of one. which is in lots yep. of, Yeah, and you see it in lots of Australian samplers in later decades as well and lots, lots of things about, like, honouring thy mother and father and all the classics. Um, yeah, so motifs on samplers across the 19th century usually include houses, flowers, animals. We see lots of sailing ships as well, um, mm-hmm. but which is interesting. I think that might be some, maybe got something to do with girls coming here on boats. I don't know. Um, and like the, I suppose, increased mobility in the British Empire. Um, But the earliest I know of like a particularly Australian motifs on a sampler um, is a sampler by Sarah Grace Wilson, who was 11 when she made her piece in 1867. It was in a private collection, but it's recently been bought by the National Museum of Australia, or donated—I um, can't remember—and um, it features the classic alphabet. And she's got some motifs. She's got white swans, some people, two houses, and a kangaroo, which is quite. Ah, ah, cute. I love that. <laughs> I know it's so fun, um, but there aren't that many samplers with Australian motifs until later in the century, and women start um, embroidering them onto their own work as well later in this later in the 19th century, and especially the early 20th century. Um, and around World War I, we see a lot more Australian motifs on samplers and things to do with, like, the Anzacs, like the Australian Army and all that kind of stuff. Um, and another fun little motif that I've seen was a steam train engine on a sampler by a girl who grew up in Castle, Maine, and she made it in 1866. So that's kind of an interesting insight into, like, growing technologies and the railways that were, like, crisscrossing Australia at this time. Um But from the 1850s, we start to see more simple samplers that I suppose perhaps less refined than Rose Pellet's like earlier 1847 sampler. They all have the same kind of like structure, like the alphabet in the upper and lower case with like borders, numbers and the name and age and the date. But most of these don't have motifs or maybe just have one or two and they're quite simple. Um, The borders are also really simple. So like Rose Pellet's sampler had borders of leaves and flowers, but the later ones usually just done in running stitch or fly stitch. They're not very decorative at all. Um, And in the 1850s, most of the samplers are all cross stitch rather than and don't really incorporate any other stitches. Um, Museums Victoria has some great examples of these needlework samplers, but not many. and one it was made by a girl called Alice Winter in the 1860s. which shows this more like simple kind of like layered style um, and it has really bright colours. And another really cool one is by Miles Franklin, who was the famous Australian author who wrote the book My Brilliant Career. She's quite mm-hmm. famous here. Yeah. Um, and her uh, girlhood sampler, which she made in 1890, um, looks like this too. It's like super colourful, um, but it's quite simple. And I think it's, it looks like wool. I haven't seen it in person, but um, it uses like variegated yarn. So it has this lovely, like fluid look. And she's got some just some simple motifs of some little baskets. Um, and it uses quite thick yarn and quite wide stitches. Um, and I think it was likely made at school because she stitched Thorn- Thornford Public School. On it, um, which kind of reflects that compulsory free education was introduced into Australia in the 1870s, which is actually super early Mm -hmm. by world standards with the introduction of schooling and compulsory needlework, we see more plain sewing samplers um, in the later 19th century. Uh, And rather rather than showcase their embroidery skills, girls made samplers um, with showing how they sewed seams and buttonholes and gussets and darning, basically how to make and mend clothing. Uh, There's a great sampler book I found at the Loretto College Ballarat Archive, which was a girls boarding school, um, which was set up in the 1870s. It was made by a student called Edith Hyman and she wrote down the methods for needlework and knitting and I think crochet as well and she pasted in examples of her work along with some adorable like ink drawings and like messages for her friends. And I think the main thing to take away from samplers and why they're such a great source is that girls from all backgrounds in Australia made samplers or at least did needlework. Um, Aboriginal girls were often taught to sew by settlers at mission schools but there are limited examples of their needlework production. Um, Margaret Fraser references a letter in her thesis about Aboriginal girls in Perth who were making samplers in 1856. And orphan girls in Tasmania also made samplers. Um, The girls at the female orphan school in Hobart made two samplers, which they gifted to Lady Jane Franklin, the governor's wife in 1838.
0: Thank you. That is so fascinating. I am just tickled by the kangaroo motif. And I love also the steam engine a little bit. Mm. I've seen that on other, not on Australian samplers, but on other samplers of a similar time period. And I love that idea of taking this new technology, these new images that you see and, and putting them onto your needlework. When you were talking about what the Australian samplers look like, it reminds me a lot of like the samplers that came out of like the Midwest and the West Coast parts of the US. Um, oh, yeah. That were like, and it it seems more like, they're quite plain because there was not really much need to do anything else, but also like there might've been a limitation in terms of material. Um, yeah. And so like, because there's only so much, like there were travel limitations, there's only so much fabric and, and thread you could take with you. So it was like, don't waste your precious materials on making decorative motifs. Learn how to do the practical right. things like letters and numerals.
1: So interesting. Yeah, that could definitely that'd be an interesting comparison because I've been reading um the a book about like, gold seeking. It's by one of the professors at Melbourne Ooh. Uni, and he compares like California and Victoria, like the gold rushes, because it happened all around a similar time right. and kind of this, yeah, like the West and kind of this like pioneering kind of like kind of thing. It's really interesting to look at. Yeah, because it's such a similar time and such similar kind of like motivations.
0: So how do Australian samplers compare to samplers made in other British colonial holdings?
1: With Australian samplers, it's like super hard to tell that they're made in Australia, I feel, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, unless it has very, they're very similar to British samplers. And unless... It has very clear provenance or location is specified or there's a name that we can definitely tie to a particular person. They they more often than not look exactly like a sampler that could have been made in Britain or perhaps elsewhere in the British world. And a lot of women made samplers in Britain and Ireland as girls and elsewhere in Europe and brought them to Australia when they were women or when they were girls as well. And, and I suppose, like, the fact that they've kept these girlhood creations and brought them around the world kind of speaks to, like, the importance of these samplers to these women and so I suppose, like, the emotional ties that the samplers have to, like, their home and I suppose, like, their new lives in the Australian colonies. Um, yeah, I've had a, look, a bit of a look on, like, the Victorian Albert website and, like, the American Sample Archive and, like, I'm personally super-duper hard-pressed to tell you the difference is between some Australian samplers and British and American samplers. Um, There's a bit of a scholarship that suggests Australian samplers like weren't as well made or refined as British samplers. Um, It's been suggested that this is due to the poorer quality of materials or the lack of materials, lack of tradition and a lack of other examples. But I think they're pretty, pretty great. I think they're beautiful. (laughs) But Australian girls like definitely borrowed from the British tradition when they were making their samplers. As many girls were born overseas, or their mothers were, or their sisters were, or their teachers were, or their governesses were Mm -hmm. born overseas, and you can totally see the emulation of like British culture, particularly English culture, and ideas through their samplers. And scholars have noted that Australians, especially English Australians wanted to retain their British culture and value and ideas and which we can definitely see in society and even society today, like our political system, our language, we speak English, Um, and especially in the material culture people use, like the paintings they hung, the clothes they wore, the books they read and the samplers they sewed. Um, Going back to like Miles Franklin, who made the awesome sampler before, um, she grew up in rural New South Wales and she recalled that in her youth it was fashionable for genteel people to loathe the Australian landscape and its attendant virtues and to yearn for England. Um, And there's a lot of discourse about Australian girls wanting to be English girls. Though these are news- these newspaper commentaries and other texts were usually written by adults, and therefore we can't really read them mm. as straight, straight as that. Like they mightn't really represent what girls themselves thought about themselves and their own lives. And also there was a lot, there's a lot of simple, simply designed samplers and plain sewing samplers, like with the buttonholes and the darning, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there was a, a discourse, decorative needlework it was bad and a waste of time throughout the 19th century in Australia. And I think this was emulated elsewhere in the British world, but I think it definitely comes to the fore in Victoria. Um, sampler making and girls sewing and making and just d- being in general was tied to a discourse of usefulness. Girls had to be useful and sewing was a productive use of their time. And I feel like the Australian colonies, um, like threw up many challenges for settlers, And middle and upper class girls and women often had to like muck in and help with chores uh, because domestic servants were scarce and there was like quite a small settler population. So girls had to be useful around the house and useful to their families and communities. And sewing was a material marker of this usefulness. So girls, sewing kind of reflects their usefulness to their families and communities. And you can kind of see this through the samplers as they kind of change over the 19th century.
0: Thank you. That is so interesting. And I guess it brings up issues of the difference between uh settler colonies and uh non-settler colonies uh, the idea of australia being a place where lots of white british people came to live whereas when i'm thinking of um the samplers made in south india or sierra leone those were made by the indigenous populations at christianizing organizations like um under the auspices of white british teachers who came not to settle but to mm. christianize the indigenous population and to teach them how to be basically good british subjects so i guess it is perhaps a difference between being being born british in the in in actual britain and then and settling into another country and being born british but moving to another country to teach A population that will never, that is not from the British Isles, how to be Mm. part of this empire. Are there extant examples of stitching by Aboriginal peoples who were taught by British colonial schoolmistresses? And if there are, how do they compare to the samplers made by uh, white British settlers in Australia?
1: A quilt. That was made by um, Noongar girls, which Noongar, the Noongar people are the First Nations people around Perth in Western Australia. Um, and this is like one of the only, I might be wrong, but I think it's like one of the earliest and probably one of the only surviving um, examples of Aboriginal girls stitching mm. in a British style. Um, and so it's like a medallion style quilt and it's a, made from like a range of like patterned and unpatterned cotton fabrics. Um, And they were taught at a Sunday school under the instruction of a woman called Elizabeth Irwin, who was a British settler and she was the niece of Colonel Frederick Irwin, who was the commander of the troops in Western Australia. And the children were also taught to read at the Sunday school and I think this also included boys. Um, So the quilt was made under Elizabeth's instruction by an unknown amount of, I'm assuming girls, there may have been boys also stitching, but it's not quite known. And it was gifted to the nanny, um, I think the Irwin nanny or perhaps it was the governor's nanny. It's not quite sure. And it was taken back to England. Um, so, yeah, like we see Aboriginal children being taught how to stitch in a European style. And there's also another really interesting example. I don't know if it exists. I'm trying to hunt it down. There was a girl called Ellen and she was a Dja wrong girl, which is the... Um, Traditional owners around kind of the Bendigo region in Victoria, which was like a gold mining area. Um, and a lot of the Jajarong people um, lived at a mission station called Loddon. Um, Loddon, or like I think it was also called Franklinford, it had a few names. But eventually they all had to move to another um, reserve called Corundirk. But before this, Ellen, she crocheted a doily and a collar and she wrote two letters and they were sent to Queen Victoria. Um, and Queen Victoria personally received them and wrote back like a personal letter of thanks to Ellen. Um, But we don't know if these crocheted objects have survived. So we do see a lot of, we do see Aboriginal girls making things very much in a European style um, and probably, yeah, like kind of taking on European stitching and I suppose needlework practices. But these were often alongside traditional um, practices such as basket making and possum skin cloak creation. Um, yeah, and, yeah, I think it's a very nuanced and very complex area which definitely deserves a lot more, um, a lot more scholarship. Like when white people invaded Victoria in, like, 1835, you see, like, um, they appoint these uh, assistant Aboriginal protectors, which were white settler men, and their families were appointed to kind of look after the interests of Aboriginal people and try to, like, record language and all this kind of stuff. But they were, it was a bad time. Um, but you do see examples of these men like trying to employ their wives and their daughters to teach Aboriginal girls and boys to read and write so they can read scripture, read the Bible um, and recite the Bible and sing hymns and also to sew. You see, like like trying to make Aboriginal children make European material culture from a very, very early date, which is very interesting.
0: So interesting. The entire thesis of this conversation is colonialism. What a bad time. That's yeah. not that's not a new or innovative thing to say, but it's just holy moly, what a what a gnarly series of events. What is your favorite needleworked object or objects? If you could pick just one or a few or a hundred, oh. here I'm happy to sit and listen to your whole list.
1: There's a yeah. samples at Museums Victoria. And they're made by two sisters the winter sisters so there was a girl called eliza winter and a girl called alice winter and they grew up in melbourne um and eliza was born in i can't remember the exact dates but she was born in probably the late 1830s her parents were in i think she was born in australia and her parents moved to melbourne at some point point. and she lived on latrobe street which is like right in the cbd of Melbourne and, like, I go there all the time and it's, like, it's right near the State Library and, like, it's a it's very central place. And she lived there and she made two needlework samplers that we have and another one that we think was made by her that wasn't quite finished. It seemed to be, like, a bit of, like, she was practising some borders and some stitches. It wasn't a proper sampler. She was just kind of playing around. Um, but she died in the 1850s. I think she was quite quite young. Let me, yeah, it was really, really sad. But then her sister... Alice also made some samples in the 1860s, but they never met. Um, so, no. we have these
0: people,
1: yeah, they never met. So, Alice was born, um, I'm going to get some dates for you. Thanks. Yeah, so Eliza was born in 1842 and she died in 1853. And Alice was born, which well, was christened in 1857, um, and she likely died in 1939. So, the sisters never met, but their samplers are like, kept together um and they were donated together to the museum and it's kind of interesting this like younger sister kind of like i don't know if she saw her older sister samplers or copied them but they do resonate with one another and alice who was the sister who survived her samplers um have the kind of moralizing verse on them that we see on a lot of samplers but one of them says that remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth which i think might speak to the fact that her older sister passed away before She was born. So that's my favorite sample at the moment. It's very morbid, but I think it has this beautiful, like, emotional resonance and kind of speaks to the emotional possibilities and capabilities of girls' needlework. Totally. That
0: is so interesting. And it actually brings up something that, like, I don't think I've ever even talked about on the podcast other than possibly in the episode about the Bronte sisters. But it's like, Mm -hmm. it's so interesting. I talk a lot about, and I think a lot about, and you probably do too, about legacies and lineages through stitching nobody has really talked about and it's so interesting legacies and lineages of stitching within the within one's own family and how that is affected by the fact that it was really hard to live past childhood and that a huge percentage undoubtedly of the samplers and pieces of needlework that we see and that survive from you know the whole slew of sampler making centuries from what the 17th to the 20th century all a huge percentage of those samplers unfortunately were made by girls who died not long after or died halfway through making their samplers or Mm -hmm. you know they started their samplers and a sister finished the sampler and this idea that um not only do these samplers and pieces of needlework tell us about girls who lived they also tell us about girls who died And finally, last question, um, how can people learn more about your work and do you have anything you'd like to promote?
1: Um, I've just written a blog post about girls' material culture in 19th century Victoria for the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth, but I don't think it's going to be out till like September. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I'm also working on a few things for museums Victoria. I'm going to do a digital story, which is going to be fun, and I think I'm giving like a little mini lecture along with some other people in a little while. But I'm working on a couple of articles and conference papers. But um, I am yeah, I'll get I'm going to get there eventually. I'll, I'll get stuff done. But if you if you Google like cat gay uni meld, it should come up with something. So if you just Google cat gay, it comes up with stuff about gay cats. So <laughs>
0: I do that I am, I have to tell you, I did do that before this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, I know. I need to look up cat gay
0: Australia and it was just about gay cats in Australia.
1: I know. So I feel like I should go professionally by Catherine gay, but um, I'm not quite sure how to transition because everyone knows me by a cat. So we will see. And I have a Twitter, which is, it's at Catherine gay underscore um, just to make the confusion about gay cats, not a thing.
0: Kat, thank you so much for this. It's been a real pleasure. I've learned like a huge amount today. So thank you.
1: Oh, thanks, Isabel. Thanks for having me on. I feel like I've learned a lot from listening to your podcast for the last like almost a year. Yeah. Thank you. Look at us go. Friendship. Yay, interview!
0: Uh, yes. Did you learn a lot? I hope so. I sure did. I'm really thrilled Kat is doing this important work. I hope this adds pieces to the puzzle of a very large undertaking project I'm counting on someone to get to, which is a mapping out of needlework made across the British Empire in the 19th century and how stitching was taught to white Britons versus indigenous populations in British colonies. Australian needlework was very similar to its British counterparts, which of course makes sense. It looks really super different to the Indian needlework I talked about last season, and the Sierra Leone needlework studied by historian Silky Strickrot. Much to think about and explore, clearly. I'm also really eager to hear what Kat learns about Indigenous Australian stitching as she continues her PhD. That's the joy of interviewing and learning from up-and-coming textile scholars, curators, practitioners, and everyone else. We'll keep learning as they do. What a treat. Also, before I go, a final, perhaps saccharine note about Australian needlework. My personal take. Isn't this whole podcast my personal take, really? Kind of. Oftentimes, yes. Yes. Anywho, there's something very poignant and powerful about the fact that these settler girls traveled halfway across the world to a place so far away from the world they knew, and put their names and ages and new surroundings down in stitch. It's obviously not all cute, though, given that these settler girls were part of a large-scale colonization effort, which, Obviously yikes, but despite that very glaring issue, I find myself emotional about the idea of traveling almost 10,000 miles away from home to start a new life, one that, for girls and women, involved stitching from the get-go. Maybe I find that poignant because I too am living far from home, far from where I grew up and the world that I know best. But maybe there's something more universal about that, that as this pandemic carries on, we're all in a new world, different from what we knew before. And just like those Australian settler girls who handled a very big move and a big change with Stitch, many of us are doing the same thing in this very different universe in which we now live. We're all using needlework, whether we study it, make it, or both, to cope with our strange new world. And now, that's all from me this week, Thank you for listening and for your everlasting support. I am a fan of each and every one of you. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast to help out little old me. Please and thank you. Now go out and stitch some stories, and if and when you do, include a little kangaroo motif. Bye!